Welcome to Little Things First Podcast. This is Jim Martin. Hi, Tracy. Hey, this is Tracy Van Eventer, and we like to, in our podcast, talk about the little things that make a difference. You don't have to have this sweeping reform and sweeping change to be able to have positive impact you on don't. your school. So we are happy to be here again with you, and thank you for pushing play. I, You know, Tracy, I just was part of a, um, a webinar, and... Um, the webinar was on the book Atomic Habits. Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. Okay, so anyway, the the facilitator of the webinar was talking about, in the book, there's an example of, um, you know, how much difference, just like a little bit of an adjustment yep. in a plane, yeah. the course of a plane, would you know, do in terms of your right. your route, right. and just like how you can just make these little like a half a degree will yeah, have you in yeah. Hawaii instead of Alaska. You know, you don't have to make a full turn yeah. or change. You know, 180 degrees yeah. or whatever. Well, that would take you back the way you were, right? <laughs> like 90 degrees. Yeah. yeah, you just can make a small little shift, and then you'd be going to yeah. a totally different All place. And so, you know, you just can make these small little adjustments in your right. practice, and right. it can make a big difference. We so. should talk about that sometime. Yeah, we I should. I love that book, actually. I actually haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I, I want to, so. Okay. Well, today we are going to be talking with Courtney Monterey, who is in Providence, Rhode Island. She was the State Teacher of the Year, and I think the uh, Distinguished Teacher of the Year as well. In teacher or? Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Sorry. Principal. Principal. Oh, yeah. cool. She was a Principal okay. of the Year and uh, for both the National Distinguished as well as the state principal of the year. So we're going to give her a call and hear more about the little things she's been doing. She's got kind of something interesting I really want to ask her about, too. So and what part, uh, what did you, where she, did you Providence, say she's from? Providence, Rhode, Rhode Island. Island. Oh, yep. okay. All right, let's call her. I've never been to Rhode Island. Nor have I. <laughs> it's far away <laughs> from us. <laughs> Hello. Hi, is this Courtney? This is. Hi, Courtney. This is Tracy Vandeventer with Little Things First Podcast, and I'm here with my colleague, uh, Jim Martin. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Jim. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you both. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to visit with us. We are really excited to hear about your school and your work, um, but we're going to let you go ahead, introduce yourself, and um, maybe a little bit about your background, and then we'll jump into some more questions. Sure. Thanks. Um, well, my name's Courtney Monteresi. It's my seventh year as an elementary school principal in Providence, Rhode Island. This is my 21st year as an educator in Providence. I spent 10 years as an ESL classroom teacher at various schools in Providence. I also spent two years as reading coach, and those years were actually spent at Fogarty, the school that I'm now principal of. I was an elementary ELL specialist for a year, working downtown, supporting elementary schools. Um, during that time as a reading coach and an elementary L specialist, I went back to school to get my master's in administration. And then I spent a year as an elementary assistant principal. And then in 2014, started the work of being principal at Fogarty. Wow, that's great. And I am thrilled to hear more about your reading and EL background because I think that pay, kind of plays into our work on uh, a growing level. You know, more and more, that's something we need to address. Absolutely. I mean, I loved being a reading coach. I, had, I really loved my time in the classroom. I really enjoyed being a classroom teacher. But when the opportunity presented itself, I was in that mindset of, you know, maybe time for something different, something mm -hmm 
with a different lens where I can still do what I love um, and do it in a different way. So when I applied and got the position, they placed me at Mary Fogarty Elementary School in Providence. Um, that school was a low-performing school that was in a lot of need, a lot of support was needed there. Um, so during my time there, I was not only supporting the school in the various literacy initiatives. Uh, for example, our district was adopting Reading Street as a new curriculum at that time. So the reading coaches played a huge role in mm -hmm. supporting teachers in any new curriculum, you know, like just the, the hand-holding and learning it together, yeah. um, making sure that everyone feels comfortable and ready to roll with that. But also I was learning how to be a reading coach at the same time. It yeah. wasn't like I had all this experience in that role. I mean, we were kind of thrown together at a really interesting time. And then as an L specialist supporting the district, I think that was what really opened my eyes in terms of how schools are run, mm. how districts are run. Mm -hmm. Because when you work at the district level, um, supporting such a precious population such as our L's, you see everything. You see you know, I already had the lens of a classroom teacher, sure. what happens within my four walls. I then I had the lens of maybe whole school-ish from being a reading coach. And then to work downtown and support nine different elementary schools, you get to see nine different leadership styles, nine different school cultures and climate, and just all the different things you would never have the experience mm -hmm. to see as a classroom teacher. Um, but I loved working with our L's. I loved supporting teachers of L's in terms of I would see one teacher who had a wonderful visual up in the classroom, take pictures. This is before social media really exploded. Uh, you know, take the pictures, go back to teachers at other schools, say, I've got to take you over to this particular school so you can see some of these things in action. And just being able to facilitate peer observations and partnerships and learning about the ways that uh, we were working with our WIDA ones all the way up to the students who were bridging and ready to integrate into regular education classrooms. So that now, was really, really a wonderful experience. Now, when you say L's, you're talking about English learners. Is that right? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so uh, do you have a large English learner population in, in Providence? We absolutely do. Yeah, more than 50% of our students are classified as English language learners. We have, at my school, we opened up two newcomer classrooms, which is students who are uh, new to the country with limited or interrupted formal education. Hmm. So a lot of students who have never attended school before or who may have had time in refugee camps, living in different countries uh, with civil unrest, and they come to America with less English or any language proficiency than that of their peers, and they need that introductory boost to their schooling experience. Do they spend the whole day in the newcomer program? Yes. Okay. And then at some point they go back into the, the mainstream out. classroom. Is that right? How long does that take? Right. So the goal is that after one year or less in a newcomer classroom, students would be able to transition into either a sheltered ESL classroom such as the ones I taught when I started in Providence, or now we have a lot more collaborative classrooms. So the population in those classrooms are half regular ed students, half English language learners. And that would be the goal is that our newcomer students would be able to transition right into one of those classrooms. What's the sheltered class? The sheltered classroom just means that all 26 students are English language learners. Oh, and so what's the difference between the sheltered class and the newcomer class? 
the shelter class might be students who are born here and who just speak another language in the home. So they might have um, literacy in both Spanish and English, but not quite literate in either. So they're learning English at school, um, not just spoken English, but also you know, comprehensive skills, written English and learning how to read. So the difference is that newcomers may have had no or limited formal schooling at all. And they could come here at nine or 10 years old. Uh, okay. Does, do kids ever start in the sheltered class and then they like go backwards and into the new, I mean, no. I don't want to say backwards. It's not really that way, but you know, no, that no. shouldn't happen. Oh, okay. No. All right. I, I have to tell you that, uh, I think that people don't think of Rhode Island as a place where there's going to be such a high number of yells. Right. And I think that we as a whole country are starting to see more and more challenges it, only in the sense that I, I think at least from my own experience, I don't feel like we've been um, in, in our state well prepared on really providing excellent service. I love the way you're describing your model and the different alternatives and the different options and the ways that you're trying to support your students uh, there. But it, interesting for us because you don't think of Rhode Island as a place where there's going to be uh, you know a, a large number of students, both newcomers or just ELs in general. So thank you for sharing you know some of those strategies. Uh, I'm curious within your own building at Fogarty, you said over 50%. So is that for the district or is that at your building or both? It's both. Uh, we, right now we have about 500 students and of that 500, I would say more than half of our students qualify as an English language learner. So that either means they are a newcomer student or they are an ESL student, meaning that English is their second language and mm -hmm. they need embedded supports in order to succeed during school. Or the students are students who are in a regular education classroom, but who qualify as an English language learner. So maybe they have been exited from the program, but they still are being monitored mm -hmm. or need support. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to specifically ask about your program that um, I read about called Inspiring Minds and wanted to know, is that something that you have put together on your own? Is it something you found somewhere else? And then how does that address the needs of all the different students in your school? Oh, okay. Inspiring Minds is not specific to me or to my school. It's a program. It's actually a, a company in Providence who supports every Providence elementary school. And they have a bank of tutors, whether community volunteers or college students who are working toward hours at their, you know, in their program to become a teacher. And they deploy those tutors and mentors into each elementary school who is accepting them as partners. And what they'll do is they'll either support in the classroom with the classroom teacher as a sort of co-teacher in terms of working with a small group or re, you know, practicing a skill that may have recently been taught, or they can be a one-on-one -on -one support, especially during distance learning last mm -hmm. spring. And then again, this fall, when different schools had different models, they would Zoom with some of our students and, and be pen pals and mentors in that respect. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's great to hear. I think we've seen some similar models in different locations where there is an organization, but I was curious because I didn't realize that this was something specific to Providence for all your schools. Um, mm. Do you find, like for your own building, um, do you find that it takes, uh, I, I'm trying to imagine some of my past buildings where I've been a leader, I've had to actually have a, a person whose job is to help coordinate because sometimes that's your biggest challenge, right? How do you mm -hmm. match these volunteers with the, the places where you have some of the greatest need? How do you take, take on that challenge? 
So do you mean the challenge of managing partnerships and, and incorporating that into your yeah. day or what exactly? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then also like making sure that this tutor that's coming is going to be matched with someone that really needs to have some, you know, a student that might need some support. Sometimes yeah, so, that's your biggest challenge. Right. Sounds like a right. full-time job on itself. Yeah. Jim, it's so funny that you say that because my first year as principal, I kind of joked, even though I was dead serious to my supervisor, said I could use a full-time person just to help me manage all the partnerships because, you know, we're very fortunate in Providence that so many outside agencies do want to support and be part of our school day and our school community. But then to your point, Tracy, managing all of that, right? So how do we make sure we don't just welcome people in and then cross our fingers and hope that it's going well. Right. So uh, we're very blessed that with each partnership, there is normally a liaison or a manager who touches base with principals on a very regular basis. And with my Inspiring Minds partnership, as an example, I have an in-school reading coach who I would designate as the point person for that partnership. Mm. So she would very frequently check in with classroom teachers, look at data, look at growth, communicate with the Inspiring Minds director, and just make sure we were always on track and, and making sure attendance wasn't an issue when it came time for tutors to be reporting to the school. Yeah. So I was very lucky to have that partnership. Yeah, definitely. Because mm. I think it can become a, you know, an overwhelming task to manage all of those. And we don't ever want to turn anyone away, right? I mean, if you're willing Never, to come right? and read with our kids, come, come. I've, but then trying to make sure you've got that match so that we know, you know, when this kid can be pulled. Because you don't want them to miss math so that they could do reading. I mean, all those other kinds right. of levels of, of, you know, support you want to provide for students. And just trying to manage it. it you know, it sounds like it's working pretty well for you. And But I'm thinking about some experiences I've had where it was overwhelming. And, um, and you know, we figured out a system and it worked out okay. But uh, I was so curious because I, I love the idea of inspiring minds and bringing in, right, others. Because we, like I said, we can never have too many people when we're talking about supporting kids and their growth and their reading and, and the work that they're doing for sure. I want to go back to the, um, the uh, L issue with the newcomer classes and the sheltered classes and then the, the regular ed classes. I'm curious about this because we don't have a model like that in Utah. And we have a lot of, you probably wouldn't think Utah has a lot of English language learners either. <laughs> but we right, do. Right. We have a lot in certain areas, um, which is great. I love it. But uh, just wondering, so do our, so newcomer and sheltered classes, those are non-graded. Is that right? So they're just like multi-age I'm not sure what you mean by TH. What was that? Multi-age. Multi-age. So, oh, multi-age. Yeah. I'm so, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no. Um, my bad. No, we, they are graded. So we'll have, for example, our newcomer classrooms, we have two, and one is a second and third, and um, one is fourth and fifth. Okay. And, so, and is that the way it is with the sheltered classes as well? The sheltered classrooms are assigned to a grade level, right? So we have a kindergarten okay. ESL and a first grade ESL classroom. And then starting in second grade, it turns, at my school at least, it turns to integrated. To, so it's second grade EL collaborative classrooms. So the classrooms um, from second grade up are half English language learners and half non-English language learners. I, you could call them regular education or however you'd want to classify that. Um, but the teacher needs to be certified to teach ESL and has language role models in the room along with students at a WIDA level one. And that's how we organize our class rosters. I see. Okay. It's very interesting. I like it. Um, so I, I'm wondering 
what makes you what made you the principal of the year? Like how did you get that designation? Besides like, being uh, awesome. Right. Well, what makes you awesome? <laughs> I mean, you have to brag about yourself a little bit yeah. and educators are terrible. Don't be shy. I I really don't know if I'd say I'm awesome, but I will say I love what I do. And I think that matters. I think, um, you know, Fogarty is is such a unique school to me in that, like I mentioned earlier, I was placed there as the reading coach. And when I was placed there, I was actually really surprised by how different it was from every other school I had worked at in Providence in that it just felt less of a happy place. I don't know how else to say it was just Mm -hmm. the building was in disarray. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of behavior issues, just kids roaming the hallway because they had just walked out of class. Uh, just a toxic culture among the staff. It just felt like just a very neglected building. And it was a new principal that year. And I was a new reading coach and the two of us would often get together uh, to do our work and not know where to start. Um, so that's when I went back to school for my administration you know, certificate in, in my master's in administration. And so, you know, every class I took, every paper I wrote, every project, Fogarty was my frame of reference because sure. I would be doing my real life thinking and working and then right. writing my papers. So a few years later, when Fogarty, I was an assistant principal and when Fogarty became available, I mean, they had had three principals in one oh. year. They'd had two principals in one year, the year before. It was just this sinking ship, right? And I, I knew a lot about it from my time there. And I, my first gut reaction was, well, who would apply to be principal at Fogarty? That feels like career suicide. That's, it's, it's nuts, right? But the more I thought about it, the more I wanted it because I felt like I had spent so much time mm-hmm. there and knew its challenges so intimately. Was that hard to make so the, I, the transition from a reading person at the school to then the principal? It, you know, it was, but it also wasn't. So there were challenges in that you know people on one level, personally and professionally, and now you're coming back as their, and I don't like this word, but as their boss, yeah. right? So, um, but I think it, it helped because a lot of principals who are new to a school take time to kind of get the feel for a school and build relationships. And Fogarty didn't have that time to waste, to be really honest with you. So it was helpful. I think that I kind of knew what I was walking into and had um, relationships that could be leveraged to leadership roles within the building. Um, So yeah, yeah so and I I kind of interrupted you in the middle of your no. your train of thought there because you were on our on the way to telling us why you're so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, well, I will say um, just some of the things I think made a huge difference right off the bat that might be you could if you want to say why that's awesome you know is the building was in such dis- disrepair it was. I'll use the word disgusting, right? So there were holes in the walls, holes in the floor, paint chips, ceilings with massive leaks and mold. It was, I don't know what, you know, where do you start? So on my very first day on the job, which was July 1st, you know, 2014, I did a building walk with the facilities and management company, Aramark, and we just went through every single classroom, hallway, corner, stairwell, and we compiled a list of every single chipped tile every single task or project in need of attention um and then you know as i'm doing that i'm also spending time opening closets 
the closets were like a teenage bedroom, just things jammed in there from decades ago, years yeah. ago. Just how are we supposed to organize ourselves, you know, from the inside out with, with this kind of clutter? Um, the things I found would actually be funny to list right now if it also wasn't just such a crazy, sad story of a neglected building. Um, so we spent a lot of time that first summer. It was me. It was our stock clerk. It was my husband, my father-in-law, just people coming in and helping out with, you know, painting projects and mm-hmm. cleaning and hanging shelves so we'd have somewhere to put the copy paper instead of a box that you trip over in the main office just because uh, we had so many challenges at, at Fogarty poor staff attendance poor job performance just a lot of personnel issues and I knew that you had to start from having the kind of building that students and staff wanted to walk mm-hmm. into every day mm-hmm. and yeah. so at my very first orientation day I presented to the staff, along with everything else, you know, the bloodborne pathogens video and everything else. <laughs> uh, I presented the pictures of what I walked into and the improvements. Because when they walked in, they could see a lot of improvements sure. right off the bat. You know, new paint, new tile, new this, new that, new windows. You couldn't even see out some of the windows. They had just, I don't know, gotten opaque over the years. <laughs> just uh-huh. you couldn't see out. So I presented it under the umbrella of the broken windows theory. Do you know about mm-hmm. that? Yeah, New York. Yes. And so I present, I love that you know about it because it's just so important. It just the whole theory of crime going down in the early nineties because of all the attention that began to be paid to different areas like graffiti removal and, you know, cleaning up different areas, um, increasing misdemeanor arrests and doing different things to make people feel that someone cares and someone's watching. And so that same theory of the, you know, someone's paying attention, someone's watching, someone cares about this school. We carried that through. I mean, it was amazing what a difference just that made. Why don't you tell our listeners what Mm -hmm. what the broken window theory is, in case they haven't heard it. Yeah, the broken windows theory. um, So the book, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, describes it best for me in terms of the way I think of it with education. Um, the fall of crime in New York City in the early 90s. And they account that several things attributed to that. Um, so, for example, disorder being an invitation for crime to occur. So if an environment of a neighborhood has that vibe that no one's in charge, no one's watching, there's broken windows everywhere, there's trash, there's crime, crime goes up, right? So what they did in New York City was petty crime and graffiti would be an invitation to more frequent and more serious activity, they would then pay more attention to those things. They cracked down on minor crimes. They painted over graffiti that covered subway cars. They increased misdemeanor arrest, things like, you know, failing to pay subway fares and other things that just policing the smallest details sent the message that someone cared and someone was watching. And as soon as they started cracking down on those smaller issues, all forms of crime in that area decreased. Um, So the way that I took that to parlay it into what we were doing at Fogarty, because it wasn't about crime at Fogarty, it was more about pride in the school and teacher attendance and student behavior, just enforcing classroom rule violations that sometimes were ignored was actually worth your time and having the kind of building that all of a sudden, you know, instead of having three principals in one year, two principals in one year where no one's paying attention to the holes in the wall, the holes in the floor, someone's here, we're paying attention, we're making it better, we're making it right. This is your home away from home. This is where you work and you should be proud to work here. And students and families should be proud, you know, to drop off in the morning and to walk into this building. 
Did you, um, did that address some of the personnel issues that you were talking about or did you have to do some other work related to that? We had a lot of work to do at Fogarty in terms of personnel issues because it had been um, neglected for so long. I, when I tell you that employee attendance, I had out of 180 school days, I had some teachers with 48 days out, Ooh. 67 days out. And this was year after year after year. So you could either turn a blind eye to that and just accept it and let it happen, or you can address it head on. And one of my biggest um, influences, my favorite author is Todd Whitaker. And he says, um, if they know you're aware of it, they know you accept it. And so if you don't address things, it's like you're silently co-signing and accepting right. these things. Right. So it just became digging into why are we absent? Why is it every Friday? Why is it two weeks every year right after the holiday? Why is it the, and paying attention. Mm-hmm. And when you pay attention, it's harder for people to take that time away from students. Sure. And it has a negative impact, I think, for those who've been showing up every day and they're watching how, hey, that one's not showing up every day. And I think that does have an impact on your school culture for sure. Exactly. I mean, the culture of the school is going to be shaped by what am I willing to tolerate? What am I willing to let go? Mm-hmm. Because then it does send the message to my uh, hard workers and achievers that I I'm tolerating that. Mm-hmm. So I love the, the idea of this quick win that you've kind of cleaned up the building and that had a big impact. And you talked about that broken window theory with your staff. I'm kind of jumping forward, I realize, but I'm curious yeah. of the group that was with you at the beginning when you had that conversation and now, how many of the staff are the same staff members? I love that question. Um, so uh, less than half. Yeah. Okay. Less than half. I, I should have written that down. That's a great, um, I look at it all the time, um, how in order to really make a difference, you need the right people in front of kids, mm-hmm. right? And so my job became getting those right people in. And, and how do you do that if there's no vacancies? It's it's getting the people who aren't good for kids out. Yeah. So, right? I, so that's huge. And I assume you had some that opted out. Because things had changed. Yes. Oh, yes. And then you also right. maybe helped some people see there might be greener pastures. Correct. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds Correct. like you have a lot of support, though, from the district office. Is that true to to kind of carry that out? Because you do. I mean, my experience has been if you are making some kind of a turnaround at a school, you need some district infrastructure in place. Hmm. People there supporting you to do that work. Has that been the case? Um, it depends on which situation it has been. Um, I would say I get a lot of support from my colleagues, my elementary principal colleagues, mm-hmm. because um, we we have to be there for each other. This job right. is hard enough to not have a network of people you can rely on. Right. There's been a lot of different types of support at the district level. Um, for example, we have our elementary executive directors. And when I got hired, you know, their names are Sue and Dottie. So when I got hired, they would be your go-to, you know, like, Hey, Mm -hmm. I'm going to write this teacher up. I'm going to present this case to human resources. Tell me, what am I missing? What do I need to do? And in the beginning, I know Sue, Sue Chin, who was my mentor and my executive director, she would come to the hearings with me. Uh She would make sure that, you know, all things were happening as they should and that I wasn't being taken advantage of and that the procedures were in place. So I would say, yes, in, in the elementary realm, I was feeling supported. Yes. Yeah. And it sounds like you had to get clear with your staff about these are the things I'm tight on. 
right? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you feel like there were things that you maybe were more loose on. Did you make any other adjustments the other way? Like we're going to, we're gonna, I guess what I'm asking too is sometimes we add things, but we don't let things go. Were there other pieces that you let go or stop doing as part of this transformation? Um, I, I probably should have because, <laughs> you know, they talk about burnout, but no, I would say there's things you have to delegate mm -hmm. because, you know, you keep, you're only one person. And in the beginning I was, it was a single administrator school. So I only got an assistant principal after my first year. And I got that support because I yeah. had to ask for it. The school didn't qualify for an assistant principal, but I would say this, um, what shifted when I got to Fogarty was with that experience that you mentioned in the beginning, you know, my reading and my ELL mm -hmm. experience, I would have been really comfortable walking into Fogarty, spending a lot of time as just straight up instructional leader. But in this school, I knew I couldn't. So the first couple of years, I spent the majority of my time in operations mode. Um, I used to think of the way I managed my classroom as a teacher, you know, everything has a procedure or a routine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wanted to support teachers at Fogarty in building that type of management style in their classrooms, but I also had to scale that thinking to the whole school and sure. how I could lead. So I kind of think about instructional leadership and operational leadership as your two hands. So instructional leadership, when I walked in, was like my dominant hand. Mm -hmm. But due to the needs of my building and all the successes and changes we saw, operations became my dominant hand. So I would work after hours with my reading coach and my math coach and the different leadership teams planning, then, you know, letting them take the lead during our common planning times. And best case scenario, I could be there co-facilitating. Worst case scenario, I had to go put out a fire mm -hmm. somewhere in the building, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as the years progressed, now I'm in my seventh year at Fogarty. I've been able to relearn how to find that balance mm -hmm. and spend more of my time as an instructional leader, um, taking the lead in reading and in math in different ways in classrooms, um, along with my assistant principal. So I don't know, I guess that's ambidextrous leadership, yeah, but it, yeah. it feels better to be able to rely back on what is my strong point, even though I've loved the operational lens. I think that is so needed to set classroom teachers up for success. We have just two more questions, and my question, yeah. uh, and then I'm going to let Jim wrap it up for us, but my question would be, what when you look at these seven years and you reflect, what are you most proud of as far as you the work your school has done? Hmm. Well, I will say when I... Uh, one thing I'm really, really proud of is, is shifting the narrative about my school. Like I mentioned, when, when that job came up, I was like, oh, that's career suicide. Who would go there? You mm -hmm. know, I wasn't the only one that knew about the reputation of Fogarty. You know, substitutes would request not to be placed there. It was uh, just behaviors and it was wild. Mm -hmm. um, and in the seven years since I've been there, I've worked with my staff. It's not something you can do alone to really shift that narrative. And because we've tightened up operations and because we have a safe and orderly environment and because we have teachers who want to be there and who care so much about the school, um, we've been able to build teacher leadership. We have an empowerment grant at our school that promotes teachers leading. Our mm. teachers mm -hmm. are facilitating PD. That could never have happened seven years ago in the state of things at that time. Sure. Our teachers are not only leading PD, they're uh, mentoring each other. We have a system for peer observations where we're learning from each other. We, I have a Milken winner at my school um, that I hired who I couldn't be more proud of. Um, we just have so many wonderful, positive things happening at our school that now our school I feel Fogarty, when you hear Fogarty, it's 
more of a positive thing and people want to come to my school. Whereas, like I said, in the past, it was the complete opposite. Sure. Sure. So you built this, what I'm hearing is this, this school that has this reputation and that has elevated to this level that you're bringing in even better people simply because Mm -hmm. of what you've become. I love that. Well, and I can, I can hear that passion in your voice. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting excited. Like (laughs) I'm ready to go to work right now. Let's do it. So anyway, thank you for that. Um, the last question that we typically ask our guests is, you know, if you could travel back in a time machine and talk to a younger version of yourself, it doesn't matter which version, whatever you choose, uh, what would you, what advice would you give your younger self? That's a great question. Um, Well, strictly about teaching and about working in a school, I think just because of what I know now, I would say participate in everything that you can and take a leadership role. Because as a classroom teacher, I knew I was doing a good job, or at least I thought I was, and I knew I was dedicated. But you're working within the four walls of your classroom, right? So I would join meetings as a teacher and attend events, but I didn't feel ownership, of the Mm. things that happen at my school. And that's the difference. And when you live in that bubble, it's so easy to jump on the complaint train or contribute to a toxic culture, even if you didn't mean to do that. Mm. So when you feel ownership in the school and you feel a sense of responsibility for, you know, big picture successes, that changes things and it changes your culture and your school pride one person at a time. So I think I would tell my early teaching self to take ownership for the success of this school, get more involved. Wow, I really love that. And congratulations on all of your success and, and, you know, being identified as a I want to come visit. Once, yeah, once right. There's no you pandemic. should come visit. We'd love to have you. We've never been to Rhode Island. We were just talking about that. So we need to go. We would love it. Once the pandemic's over, you should come okay. because it is a really cool place. All right, we're going to take you up on it. Are you in person or are you still virtual? We're fully in person, K to five. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you so yeah. much for taking time out of your busy day and your busy schedule. I know when it gets to be, you know, a, a time when you're not in front of your school and leading your school, those are precious moments. And we appreciate you giving some of those to us to talk and learn more about the work that you're doing. And, uh, and they are lucky to have you. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for reaching out to me and, and thank you for including me in this. Thanks, Courtney. Nice to meet you. Nice Good to luck. meet you both. Bye, Tracy and right. Jeremy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.